Do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Our bestseller is all they're cracked up to be. Here at Terrible Book Club, we explore whether you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. You ever passed a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Welcome to episode 137 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Paris, and this is Chris. Hello. This time we read Hangman's Curse by Frank Peretti, as requested by our patron Beast with the Least. They said that this book is probably the laughably worst YA novel I've ever read or that I haven't blissfully forgotten about. There's an equally bad low-budget movie version of the book as well, if you really want to torture yourselves. <laughs> well, we t- we so far have not taken Ooh. you up on that, Beast with the Least, but we may. Uh, this book was published in 2001, so this, is, this book is 21 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. We haven't read any sort of mystery, spy, YA books where the president and Christianity are involved ever so we're certainly well, broaching new frontiers here on the terrible well, book mean, planes what about what about the very first tbc book paris i know that's not ya but it's sort of in the similar vein yeah but like the president wasn't involved it wasn't like a secret True. organization yeah. it was yeah, just fair. it was more political thriller anyway yeah Welcome. Uh, If this is your first time listening to the show, what we do here at the Terrible Book Club is read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. Sometimes, like today, we read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends recommend. So we do the opposite of what most people do in a bookstore or while they're browsing the internet and looking for something to read. Typically, this experiment results in a disappointing and hilarious read, but once in a while, we do actually end up liking the book. Uh, before we get too far in today, we would like to do a review spotlight. Yay! Up front! I know the last few review spotlights we've done were uh, negative one-star reviews, so <laughs> it was That's like, why they're at the end. No, actually, it's just because sometimes we, we like to move things around a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, most of the time I see reviews usually like a month or two after they've come in through like this report i get but this one somehow eluded the reporting system i guess they don't check podcast addict which is where i found this review so apparently way back in june of last year (laughs) um podcast addict user uh, meru berry said i found this podcast through youtube recommendations because they talked about growing around and i was instantly hooked been listening all day the hosts are thoughtful and pleasant to listen to I sometimes think they care more about these topics and stories than the people who wrote about them. So that was very yeah. nice. Thank you. Yeah, I think Paris does care more about these topics and does more research. <laughs> I'm not going to say I do. <laughs> All right. Our content warnings today. Uh, in addition to our usual barnyard language, today's episode includes discussion or mention of 
death, hanging, poison, spiders, suicide, and just a whole big heaping of Christianity and anti-evolution sentiment. So if any of that stuff is a problem for you, perhaps skip today. All right. How about I do the back of the book summary, Paris? Yeah, take take us away. Tell us what this author wanted us to be tantalized by <laughs> to choose this book. They could be anyone, anywhere, even the person walking by you right now. The Veritas Project is their codename, but only a handful of people know teens Elijah and Alicia Springfield have been covertly commissioned by the president to investigate strange mysteries that delve into the paranormal and supernatural. Their charge is to find out not only what happened, but why. The Veritas, Latin for truth, behind the seemingly impossible phenomena. Their new assignment, Hangman's Curse. In Baker, Washington, three popular student-athletes lie in an incoherent coma with loss of muscle coordination, severe paranoia, and hallucinations. It's whispered that they're victims of Abel Fry, a curse that's haunted the school since a student died there in the 1930s. Now the curse is spreading, and students are running scared. The Veritas Project must go undercover to find the truth before it's too late. Thank you, Chris. That was a fantastic reading of of this book's uh, back of the book advertisement. Can we just have a brief moment to acknowledge that Veritas Project here is not that thing that tried to do a sting operation on Acorn way back when? You remember that guy? What what is James O'Keefe or whatever his name was? I do remember the Veritas Project does sound... Oh, Project Veritas is an American far-right activist group. Yeah, you're right. So this is... (laughs) So, and to be clear, the far-right activist group called Project Veritas was formed in 2010, and this book was written in 2001, so this book could not sure, have predicted Sure, but you know, hey, there's something here happen. about Christianity and far-right, and we know the truth. <laughs> yeah, they are kind of connected. Oh, boy. I wonder, oh my god, what if James O'Keefe got this book for his kids, and he was like, that's what I'm making my secret <laughs> organization. I found it. <laughs> I'm the secret investigative Christian Scooby-Doo team. I mean, the secret... That seems plausible to me. Like, not even possible. Like, that sounds like we might be right. <laughs> we know the Veritas. <laughs> oh, all right. Anyway, um, we kind of forgot to do characters, but uh, we talked <laughs> So, characters and setting. All right. The setting is the fictional town of Baker, Washington. It's probably named after Mount Baker, uh, which is, of course, like the you know, colonized name for the mountain. I was actually going to, I was like, oh, I should make sure I mention like what the, the indigenous name for the mountain is. And then I went down a fucking insane linguistic rabbit hole and discovered that the name that everyone thinks is the indigenous name for Mount Baker is actually just a bastardization of two different native languages by a white guy from an interview in 1912. <laughs> so cool. The truth of the matter is there are dozens of related native languages in uh, Washington, what is now Washington state. And so, you know, every language group has a different name for it. Uh, They all generally refer to it as like big snowy mountain or like (coughs) uh, the white watcher. I've seen some descriptions anyway. 
I don't want to fuck up native words because uh, they're really hard to pronounce because I don't really quite understand the diphthongs and, and stuff. cause another renaming of the mountain ca- because some <laughs> white lady on the podcast <laughs> decided to yeah, just mangle that, it. Yeah, I I'm the next idiot uh, to fuck up the name. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. I really like words and linguistics, so I always like to read about this stuff, and I, I went on a fun rabbit hole. So anyway. Um, characters. We have the fucking Springfield Scooby Doo team of the Springfield family. It's mom, dad, and then twins, Elijah, Elijah, and Alicia. Right? They're the twins. Nate and Sarah are their parents. Yep. There's also Mr. Maxwell the dog. So totally not Scooby Doo at all. Mm-hmm. Totally not Scooby Doo with their not fucking Scooby-Doo. RV that they roll around in <laughs> to solve mysteries. Uh, yeah, it's just it's it's Christian Scooby Doo. Uh, anyway, you've got like I mean the president shows up at one point. There's mm-hmm. like two secretaries and some guy in an office where like they get dispatched from. There's the school faculty. Like the principal is uh, Miss Worthen. Yes. There is Carrillo, the cop, the security there, guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a couple of teachers like Tom. Um, Gessner, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Marquat, the school coach, who's a jerk. And then all the kids um, at the school. There's like yeah. Ian and Crystal, the goths. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is that's fine. That's all you need to know. I think we're good. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then we could we'll it all will be revealed in the Terrible Book Club summary there that Chris is going to, or I am going to read to you that Chris wrote. So we like to do these plot summaries for folks before we do the review so that you understand a little bit more about what we're referring to and kind of how the whole book broke down. These, of course, do contain spoilers. If you care about 21-year-old Christian YA novel spoilers, I guess. (laughs) Skip ahead a few minutes. Anyway. The Springfields are a Christian family that work for some kind of investigative bureau called Veritas that reports directly to the U.S. president. Veritas consists of the Springfields, two secretaries, and one guy answering phone calls from the president. This time, they are called in to investigate a strange sickness spreading through a high school in Baker, Washington. The sickness is characterized by sudden onset of garbled speech, possible hallucinations or delusions, followed by coma and eventually death. All of these students, in their delusional state, mention the name Abel Fry, who is apparently the ghost of a hanged kid that haunts the school. The Springfields arrive and take on cover identities at the school. Nate, Springfield dad, is a janitor. Alicia and Elijah, the two teens that are twins and role as students. Sarah, the mother, does research in the background. Together with their trusty dog, Scoot, I mean Mr. Maxwell, the family (laughs) investigates the school uh, from multiple angles. Nate interacts with faculty and staff, some of whom know his cover, some who are ignorant of it. Alicia and Elijah speak with the student body, and Sarah synthesizes the information and helps identify further leads. The first angle is investigating Ian Snyder, stereotypical goth kid in a trench coat, since all of the victims so far are known to have bullied him. The Springfields soon come across a ritual chamber full of skulls and graffiti and candles, and it points to witchcraft. Being good Christians, the Springfields are alarmed, but try to take a non-judgmental angle of attempting to connect with Ian and other students connected to the ritual chamber. Elijah befriends Ian in order to gain more information. Meanwhile, Alicia tracks down more bullying by befriending Norman, another student, who has been bullied by the same cadre of student-athletes. Nate finds that the school coach, Mr. Marquat, turns a blind eye to the bullying his student-athletes do since it's survival of the fittest and, as we all know, evolution bad and wrong and wildly misinterpreted here. So Mr. Marquat is a callous jerk indeed. Turns out 
there is no ghost, and really, Norman was secretly part of the goth coven. Unbeknownst to the actual goth kids, he was raising a den of monstrously poisoned spiders. <laughs> Upon hearing who the bullied students would want removed, he would place a straw with a male spider in it somewhere in the targeted student's belongings. The straw was plugged with sugar as a slow-release mechanism. Then, he would place female spider pheromone on the student as well, usually by way of pheromone-sprayed cash that was extorted from him. The male spider would smell the pheromones, get super horny, then pissed when he gets spider blue balls, and then bite the student, thus killing them with its venom. Sarah discovers this after investigating the straws and calling in an entomology professor to give her specific information on spider species who could kill. But oh no, Norman's breeding protocol wasn't safe enough to prevent the super poisonous spiders from crossbreeding with brown recluses in the area. And now there are ultra poison spider hybrids loose at the school. In the final climactic scene, Alicia is trapped in the walls of the school, enveloped by spiders, while Norman must save her. Save her. After originally leaving her for dead at first, but breaking down and confessing when confronted, after being bullied into it by Nate. Through the power of prayer and actually the knowledge of the entomology professor, Alicia survives being bitten 50 times by spiders lethal enough to kill others in one bite within 24 hours. <laughs> the truth is revealed and evolution is also revealed to be wrong because the spiders evolved into killing machines, thus making them more fit for their environment to breed further, which would result in more changes down the line. Wait, no, fuck, shut it down. I'm sorry. Jesus. <laughs> Chris, I don't know what you were going for at the end there, but anyway. Well, I mean, because like this whole thing is railing against evolution as being incorrect, <laughs> yeah. and then the spider hybrids are created by crossbreeding and traits being, you know, presented that were, I guess, beneficial for the spiders. Yeah, I don't really you know You would think how. there's a little bit of a catch-22 there. <laughs> anyway. All right, so just to recap... Scooby-Doo Christian family comes to investigate school where kids are going crazy and dying. Turns out it was sort of the goth kids who are just wishing it and thinking that the ghost was doing it. But actually, it was a science geek who was using poison spiders that he got from Africa. Question mark. We'll talk about that later uh, to create these little spider traps that were actually targeting the people that the other kids wanted harmed without their knowledge. Yay. Okay. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling Christians. Yes. Oh, all right. Things that were good about this book. I got to say, line by line, it's actually written really well, especially for a YA book. Agree. Uh, I think the opening scene, well, if you if you skip the very first page, it's kind of like a prologue. Just don't read that. Just don't read that. It'll <laughs> fuck it up. It'll ruin it because it yeah. ruined it for me. Um, yeah. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But um, the opening scene where there's like a, a football match in progress and it kind of takes you through one of the kids suddenly losing his mind and, you know, becoming mad and fucking up the football game. And everyone's like, what the fuck is going on? It was really good. It was really interesting. I was like, wow. OK, I want to I want to read classic X-Files yes! episode opener. Yes, 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 exactly. Honestly, I didn't even make the Scooby-Doo connections because I'm an X-Files person. And so I was like, fuck, this is I had the same thought. I was like, this is a great episode. As we all know, I'm much more of a Scooby-Doo person. Chris, you're wearing a tropical Hawaiian shirt right now. So I think I think the point has been proven. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I was just like sick. This is a great, uh, basically like an X-Files tale. I'm down. I thought it was really interesting. It made me want to keep reading. 
the pacing is great. The whole story moved along quickly. I never felt bored. Snappy, yep. right to the point, you know, stuff like just you're strung along nicely for that. And um, yeah, like I don't think there's much fluff here except for some classroom scenes in which we get in some morality discussions. But that's for later. <laughs> yeah. But um, like aside from that, like from that first scene, I actually went through the book pretty breezily yeah. i kind of wanted to see where it was going with the mystery and like it's it's not too obtuse it it leaves you some breadcrumbs that are interesting it does your classic it's not really the first guy but we had to get to the bottom of it like svu maneuver too <laughs> yeah um yeah i agree i i thought the way it was constructed you know at least technically speaking was pretty good uh, it also has a lot of good descriptive language, which I was kind of surprised to see. Um, I have a couple of examples here. <laughs> a uniformed police officer rose and offered his hand. Gessner introduced him. Nate Springfield, this is Dan Carrillo, in charge of security. Carrillo was a shorter man, a bit thin and nervous, like a tight little terrier. He was standing just outside the school office with the steadiness of a courthouse pillar and the authoritative air of a traffic light. It's good descriptive similes in writing yeah. there to set up not just like who this person is, but what vibe he gives off. And yeah, you don't you don't get like he had brown hair and a red shirt. And he was cop. He was and a, because cop. He was authority. <laughs> right. But like what kind of authority? Like the traffic light authoritative air is like a specific version of authority right yeah. and that's really where where the good descriptive writing comes in is like you you can relate to like that particular segment yeah and i really like the description that he was tight like a little like a little terrier that's a great like i know exactly who that man is now like i know yes. he's a little little wound up skeleton of a man just ready to arrest the nearest kid for blowing a bubble with his gum you know um <laughs> get down on the ground <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right and then our last example is uh sort of i guess the beginning of a chapter later in the book <clears throat> the air smelled musty like an old cellar and dusty like the pulverized concrete that lay everywhere and here the throbbing of the school's furnace was more than a sound it was a presence space to turn was tight standing in here was like being buried alive under an old structure that had fallen in on itself in the beams of their headlamps, a narrow, haphazard path wound through helter-skelter slabs of concrete and disappeared into a bramble of tumbled concrete posts and ceiling-high piles of rubble. Alicia tapped Elijah's side and pointed toward the floor, now a thick layer of grayish grit and dust. There were footprints in the dust, some of them perfect impressions of popular shoe soles, the brand names readable. The most recent prints were heading the opposite direction, out, in other words. Yeah, I just good scene I, setting yeah, at the top of a chapter. Totally, like I totally, I can absolutely picture that in my mind. You know, it's much better than just being like they were in the basement with the old heater. You know, like like this. this it's a good description a that segues into focusing you in on how this is relevant to the mystery with like the shoe print thing too. Yeah, I gotta say, as much as there were some things I really hated about this book, it was. It was enjoyable to read. <laughs> like, yes. Like overall. Uh, mm. If you're looking for like a technical sort of um, example of how to organize your mystery writing and how to dole out pieces of like yeah. character descriptions weaved in with like little bits of breadcrumbs to like figure out the mystery. 
this book is effective at that. It's yeah. it's really well done at that. Yeah, I feel like um, I didn't even know because I, I was trying to figure it out too. I was like, "Fuck, who's the real?" I was like, "I really don't think it's Ian," you know. And and I love things like this. As if you've listened to the show before, you know that me, Paris, uh, I very much love having to figure out a little bit. I don't like having things served to me on a platter because I feel like it's a disservice to the reader, um, and it's a little insulting, right? Uh, to be like, oh, I guess you can't figure it out. Here's a really obvious clue. I think they did a really good job. I um, Yeah, I, I don't think I figured out the mystery until like page 170 or 180. And this was like a 230 page book or something. So it took me a while to get there. I had an inkling as to who it was but like because like I had to be like, OK, it can't be Ian. That's too obvious. Even though there's the way Ian and the goth kids are painted in this book is this whole oh, yeah, can of worms that yeah, we will unravel. Okay. <laughs> But I was like, that's too on the nose, and he seems too earnestly into the whole goth thing, and there's got to be some Scooby-Doo. It wasn't really a ghost angle here. Yeah. So I had my suspicions as to who would be smart enough and also bullied enough to pull something like that off. Yeah. Anyway, so I think the structure of the mystery, like Chris was saying, was pretty good. Um, I also was pleasantly surprised that the main characters, you know, this like investigative family, didn't immediately jump to conclusions about the case. They did actually investigate... And use science, and they did not go for the first obvious lead, which I gotta say, being a little, I was a little judgmental because the book uh, is very clear right at the beginning that it's like super Christian. And I was like, oh no, they're just gonna go after the goth. Yeah, kids. right. Especially <laughs> for a family that is explicitly taking a lot of things on faith and intuition and gut, right? Like, that's the, our whole, you gotta say, that's like the whole thing around being Christian and re- or just generally religious is like taking some things on faith and by the gut, but they don't do that when it comes to the mystery. Yeah, which I thought was great. I was like, oh, wow, they're actually investigating this really well. Like they're taking all the steps that I would want someone to take and like not make assumptions. So that was another great part of the way this book was structured. Um, Oh, I also forgot to say that there's a part in the book where um, the parents, Nate and Sarah and the kids, Alicia and Elijah, are both investigating this like myth at the school about Abel Fry to try to get more information about it. And they're investigating it in two different spheres. The parents are investigating it with the adults and the kids are investigating it with, you know, the other students their age. And the author does this really clever thing to kind of bring to light um how rumors start and how misinformation happens. And I thought it was really well done. There's a scene where the paragraphs um, kind of go back and forth. They take turns. So like in one paragraph, you're with Sarah talking to the librarian and the next paragraph you're with Alicia talking to like kids in the lunchroom and every paragraph you see how different the myth is for these different groups of people. So like the librarian is like, Oh, Abel, there's never been a student named Abel Fry, like, but in, in 1930, whatever, there was a kid who had, who was like a chicken farmer or something. And she's talking about it. And then they flip to the cafeteria and the kids are like, yeah, Abel Fry was like this damaged kid and he had a hawk for a pet that he used to attack people. And so like, you can kind of see where the misinformation comes from places in reality, you know, like, there was a kid who had chickens, right? 
and people didn't like him. So then it, it turns into like, oh, he's this evil kid with killer hawks, you know? <laughs> and like, I just, and there were other parts of it too, where they kind of did that flip back and forth. And I thought that was a great, um, it was a great tactic. Yeah. Uh, so also like classic, like drama builder, like you see it a lot in television shows where like two people are getting the story from two different sources and like one piece of dialogue cuts in with another one. So I think this author, Frank Peretti, must have like watched a lot of serial detective shows or like X-Files kind of stuff and probably actually understood why it worked pretty well and deployed it effectively in in this book. It's really hard to do that kind of flipping back and forth without it being too messy. Mm -hmm. And it was accurately done here. Care was taken in that sense. Um, And then lastly, the last thing that I had in my like things that were good notes is um there is a part at the beginning where they're talking about uh, like before they were here in baker washington investigating the paranormal they were busting a drug ring in (laughs) somewhere else Uh, it's kind of unnecessary really wide net of investigative (laughs) things to chase down here some ghost shit here some drug ring stuff there like really you guys need to kind of narrow your scope a little bit more unless there was some like ghost shit involved in the other drug ring that we didn't know about yeah like don't we already have like like the the fucking DEA DEA and and the ATF yeah like why wouldn't they be investigating so the president is like get the Springfields on it yeah I understand it being like a separate thing for paranormal stuff because as we all learned from X-Files you know no government agency wants to fund that with a 10 you know with a 10 foot pole with a 10 foot pole fund that with a 10 foot pole <laughs> fund that from like a 10 foot pole distance away dropping cash like far away <laughs> Ooh, mixing metaphors uh yeah. today sorry about that but you know what i mean uh government agencies generally not stoked about funding paranormal investigations so that part makes sense i agree <laughs> secretary of the treasury going to the president like you gave money to who for what <laughs> For some Hanna-Barbera shit in Baker, Washington? Marge, we grew up with Scooby-Doo. Give me this. I'm going to get voted out the next, at the end of my term. Give me this. Give me the Springfields. Fine, but Flint's not going to have clean drinking water for another 10 years. Fine. I don't care about Whatever. Flint. I need to know what happened to that school. It's just really eating me up every night in the, in the White House. I'm pacing the halls and looking at photos of Lincoln and Washington and going, what's going on with those kids? (laughs) Um, Anyway, sorry. What I was trying to get to is towards the beginning, they do this like drug sting or whatever. And um, they start talking about how to handle um, drug offenders or I hate to say that, but that's kind of how they're painted in the book or how to handle people who are involved in crime. And I did like that their emphasis was on rehabilitation and not on like, you know, throw him in the van and take away the key and send him to Guantanamo or whatever, you know, like that's not the vibe. And the dad, uh, Nate Springfield even says that we should be looking at things at a get to the heart level, which I pretty much agree with. Like, I don't think that we should be, 
as punitive as we are as a society in America. And I was appreciative of that. I mean, obviously like this guy's idea of get to the heart is like, they need to love Jesus, which is, yeah. So that's kind of where it takes like a sharp fork away from how we would do that. But there is some common ground there of like, it's it's not just more police, more force, more punishment. That's going to solve these problems. There's systemic issues that we have to get to. Of course, for these folks, it's like, well, there's not a nuclear family of mom and dad and 2.5 kids and Jesus in the middle there. That's what we all really need. (laughs) Yeah, so their ideas of systemic issues are different from ours, but I still think it's good that that sentiment was there. I I was surprised that it was like, hey, we already found a place to put this kid that we arrested. He's going to go to this rehab facility. Like, not a rehab facility, but he's going to go to like a a program for like troubled youth and they, and they vetted it and felt it would be good for him and stuff like that. So on top of that, when they're dealing with Ian and crystal and that, you know, sort of goth coven, as we put them, even though the, the the way the author writes about them (laughs) is just very stereotypical and like, I'm not going to say bigoted, but like kind of sniffing around that area of like people who just wear black clothes and maybe don't wash themselves all the time in the way that it's expected and aren't blonde haired and like pretty and shit like that. Aside from that, there is still that element of the family going like, no, we shouldn't just shit on these kids just because that, you know, they're being like they're being bullied and they're looking for a way to deal with that. So I appreciated that even though it was totally couched in a bunch of horse shit that we're basically (laughs) about to get into yeah i agree i did appreciate that they were like hey you know bullying and harassment is a real problem like as you can see it's the whole reason this whole thing unfolded this is something we really need to care about and you can't just sweep it under the rug it's what causes people to have reactions like this and to seek revenge and you know so anyway all good off we go to the okay. things that were bad section. <laughs> welcome. So this welcome. Is, that was probably this pretty surprising considering Peace with the here. Least was like, this was the worst book I've ever read. That's YA. And we're like, actually, it was pretty well constructed. However, despite all that. What's inside the house is also yeah. important. Even if the house is well built and pretty on the outside, the contents, whew, contents sometimes different. Um. So remember earlier when I was like, hey, the opening scene is really good if you ignore the one page prologue. That's because the one page prologue is a letter from the U.S. president. It Don't open your book with a letter to or from the U.S. president. Just don't do it. Just don't do it ever. It's a really bad it's just convention corny, that bro. I've seen. It's- yeah, it's so bad. It's so corny. There was no need to do it because... After that happens, the very beginning is like, is it the very beginning or is it the chapter after the football game where it's like in the offices of the Veritas project? Like it explains it anyway. So like the letter doesn't do anything that the rest of the text doesn't already do. So don't start your book with a letter to her from the U.S. president ever, unless it's like a biography of a U.S. <laughs> president, I guess, and the letter is meaningful to place there. I I mean, I just think it's like, yeah. It's, yeah, like I yeah. understand that like you're trying to just Didn't have the stand-in of like super important guy in the government is involved in this, but like just going right to the president who has other shit to deal with besides, as I put it before, some Scooby-Doo-ass Hanna-Barbera fucking stuff happening in some random small town in America, you could just have it be a senator. 
a representative who, where it's a little bit more believable that they would have this like pet project. Huh. And that's something we learned from Boastgusters when it was like the senator who had this secret fucking project, which again, yeah. way more believable yeah. <laughs> than the president. Um, anyhow, so I don't know. That That's just, I think, my general advice. Find a different way. If you do desperately need to involve the U.S. government in something, don't make it the president. Don't immediately jump to the point of the spear there. Yeah, really. Um, secondly... Look, these kids are never going to be as cool as Mulder and Scully. Like, we could just end this book right here. Like, it's not the X-Files. I want it to be the X-Files. Um, they don't even have the coolness of the Scooby-Doo gang, to be honest with true. you. It's true. Um, I don't know. I guess I was just thinking as it went on, like, I wish Mulder and Scully were investigating this instead of these kids. <laughs> so that was just yeah, a Yeah, because instead of a Christian family, you get two hot people with a little bit of tension investigating <laughs> cool shit with science and not going, we got to pray about it. Yeah. Although, you know what? Mulder is a little bit, like, faith-based in some things. Not Jesus-y faith-based, but he's like, I know it's, like, paranormal shit. I know I know in my gut. Oh, he's alien faith-based, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cosmic exactly. faith-based. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I think we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, but the whole idea of, like, a really cool family does secret sting operation for the president it's pretty dumb, but then I thought about it and I was like, but the U.S. government does dumb shit all the time, so I don't know, maybe like, I, I do agree though with Chris's assertion that if it was a senator or a house rep, it would make way more sense than the president. Um, I just didn't understand why, like, I get if Project Veritas is only going to look at things that kind of border the paranormal. I didn't understand the drug sting at the beginning because it's like, that's just the DEA. Like, why does yeah, it need to be like, separate? Why do you need the Jesus Christ investigation unit to get in here? <laughs> I don't know. All right. Next next thing is, what kind of public school is this? What kind of public <laughs> school, this public is, school? This? So we're in this Baker, Washington, you know, fictional town, but I assume it's supposed to be like one of the towns near Mount Baker. Like, all right, here, here's some things to consider. At the high school football game in that that opening scene that we were saying was so, like, gripping and interesting, as the football player begins to sort of go mad and break down and obviously be in distress, someone calls for the doc. And I was like, do, do, do high school football games have doctors? I I don't think so. But then a page later or so when the doc shows up, they're just medics. But then I also was like, I don't even know if they would even have real medics at a, I feel like they would have I like mean, student so, volunteers. I mean, Paris, I gotta say something. like as two people that never interacted with high school sports at all, we <laughs> definitely don't have the, the like positioning yeah. to actually say whether this is realistic or not. And I think like splitting hairs over someone saying doc versus medic is really, you know, come on, they, you know what they really meant. It's just like, where's the medical guy yeah. who we're going to call doctor at all times. I'd assume there would be like a school nurse perhaps like called it, but like, why would the school nurse go on like their off time to the high school football game? Although, as I know, often the sports programs are the most well-funded parts <laughs> of the extracurricular. So, of course, they might pay you know someone to come in, especially if they want their student athletes to not get hurt. It's totally believable to me that they would have like. Yeah, I think I think I just had a a, a split second like they have a doctor. <laughs> so yeah, it was really just the use of the. Hello, I'm Doctor Football. I'm here. <laughs> So I got the doc that really threw me off. Okay. The other, I feel like the other points I have are, are yes. more credible. Um, 
Okay, I never went to a school with a metal detector, which is surprising given where mm-hmm. I grew up. Um, but do metal detectors have students monitoring them? Is that yeah, normal? Yeah, there was a student at, at doing the metal detecting stuff. I guess because you spent all your money on the, the football doctor, you don't have <laughs> time to hire like a detail officer for the school. But like even just an adult would be fine. Yeah, I, right? I, I like. <laughs> the idea of a student monitoring the metal detector like what's a student gonna do if another student brings a gun just be like uh i didn't see nothing see you later like yeah. i just i don't think that makes any sense yeah like probably way more easily intimidated yes. is like the teacher's pet hall monitor ass kid <laughs> that's yeah. like stationed at this thing and like the one kid's like you better shut the fuck up or this piece is gonna be in your face yeah i just seems really like why even have the metal detector at that point <laughs> like you just wasted thousands of dollars Oh, and then lastly, what high school has TAs? Question, question one. Yeah. Also, what question, what question, what question two, what high school has fucking lab animals? Like a whole fleet, a whole zoo of Yeah, not just animals? like the one little like chicken egg thing. Cause like my school had like, let's hatch chicken eggs. And that's like, you know, probably a lot easier to get than like the fucking lab rats and like, uh, like multiple, like boa constrictors yep. and entire lab setup. And, but like also like, you know, the weight room is like fully outfitted with yes. everything. So here's the thing. Here's the, like one of those programs has to be underfunded, right? <laughs> Somewhere and somewhere, I guess I didn't hear anything about a music program, so they were like, fuck the music program, all that money, <laughs> you guys get old bent recorders or some shit. <laughs> no, there's just, they don't have music in Baker, Washington, it's outlawed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I was like, this is a public school, and I, I checked numerous times, I was like, public school, okay. And I don't know if maybe they were just like, this area of Washington, we're, we think it's wealthy, therefore the public school is going to be just just rolling in it. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like even wealthier school districts, their public school wouldn't be this nice and have this much amenities. Like, I... Who know, I you know what? It. I went to a tiny private school, so once again, I don't really have any sort of bearing on what most public schools are going to look like, you would have a little bit better, even though you're not from a possibly wealthier area no. like this. But Mm-mm. you know what? I will say that Brookline High School, which is a decently wealthy area, yeah. recently built like three new buildings, like entire wings, and they were apparently had enough pull there to shut down the train station that was next to my job because the building was being built right next to it for a full year and a half. I had to walk an extra 15 minutes to work, which like, fine, whatever I could use the walk, but like (laughs) the high school getting a new building built. I mean, it's literally over the train station. Like the building went like on top of like the above ground outdoor train station there. So I can kind of understand it, but like for a full year and a half, well, Chris, thank you for giving us your villain origin story monologue that will now be used <laughs> against you in, during the next investigation from yeah. the Veritas Project. Fuck public schools, I guess, because who, they got my, they mildly inconvenienced me. Who blew up Brookline High? Ah, the blind music teacher. You inconvenienced him for nearly two years. It was him. Uh, um, uh, anyhow, um... Yeah, I don't know. I think just as somebody who went to a real, you know, grew up in an impoverished area, went to a really shitty 
uh, I guess shitty, not in terms of the quality of education I got, but shitty in terms of like lacking resources, high school. This seems just wildly impossible to me. Also, <laughs> yeah. just because I know I have friends who work in public schools now in areas Boston. that are, yeah, in areas that are both, you know, wealthier Central and not. Boston, like, you know, probably has property taxes out the ass. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know, but maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I don't know. Maybe if if Baker Washington is supposed to be like really wealthy, maybe this makes some sense. It just, it was just weird to me. Um, all right. Next section is the morality bullshit section. This is really the meat of it, I would say. Now, the making fun of evolution section after this is also like <laughs> problematic and could have been cut really easily. Like, did not even need to be in there. Um. The morality bullshit, like, all right, we're going to start off with, you know, despite all the good descriptive language in this book, the way that the author describes anyone who is kind of an alternative goth kid or just even anyone who isn't blonde and perfect looking, it just feels like anyone... Who is clean shaven, well dressed, showered, blonde, tall, not wearing mall goth clothes is morally good. And it just felt kind of gross. And it, it wasn't super heavy handed. It's more of, a, again, it's more of an undercurrent. But I just really didn't like that tacit nod to like kids that wear black don't shower. Like that's not really a thing that I've. I it mean, it was true for me for a period, I will say. Sure. I mean, but I mean, that's just kind of like kids in general. Like, like, yeah, like growing up into it and, and, and like learning to deal with all that shit in any way you can and learning to manage all the, the stuff that you're supposed to be doing as a human being while in the midst of many hormonal changes and social climates that might not be set up for you to succeed. Yeah. So I don't know. I just feel like when I was in high school, it wasn't like a trend that the goth kids were unwashed. It was just kind of like some random kids, no matter what subculture they were a part of, weren't taking care of their hygiene. And that's just kind of what it's like to be in a high school. So I guess I didn't appreciate the whole like. I was the unwashed goth kid in my school for oh. a year or two. So well, congratulations. You've, re- yes. you've recovered unwashed goth kid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I was totally ready for like after that ritual chamber scene, which like was really oh. setting up like, you know all these kids are like really into witchcraft and devilry i was totally ready for the follow-up scene with like that those goth kids being caught red-handed consuming like some kind of degenerate media like they're listening to death metal or watching horror movies or like playing DD or watching some kind of like fetish porn or something (laughs) like that or throw it all in one big cauldron where they're rolling d20s in fetish gear while listening to 10 hours of fart noises on youtube oh yeah they got into like harsh noise yeah, I was also waiting for that, and it didn't happen, which I guess is really a good point. Um, yeah. But in general, there's sort of this tacit nod to the idea that, like, you have to be well-dressed and showered to be a good person, which I think is kind of shitty. Um, you know, I feel like if, so what, if this author saw, like, Jesus on the street, probably kick him and call him a degenerate <laughs> Like, I, I don't think he'd kick him. He doesn't actually seem... Uh, cruel in like a martial way but yeah it just I don't know it rubbed me the wrong way yeah this passing judgment of people that don't fit into the norm is like being worth a look into right like even if like it's not necessarily criminal it's just like we should keep an eye on them yeah and I mean yeah they do try to show some humanity and reason when they're like well the kids are 
pissed because they're bullied, but like they still they still kind of demonize them regardless, yeah. which is unfortunate. Um, not having a husband is mentioned as a bad thing. My note is yeah. LOL. Fuck off forever. Absolutely. <laughs> fuck all the way off and never come back, please. Yeah. There's a, there's a line where they go to interview one of the kids moms and they describe her as kind of like drunk and not really like wearing like a robe instead of real clothes and talk about how, well, she doesn't have a husband. So that's really it was like not bad. having a husband didn't help things like, yes. oh, she needs a man to tell her how to live. Maybe she just likes being comfy in her home and having a, a cigarette, man. Like, and, you know, if she's, you know, if she's got a problem with alcohol addiction, that's a real thing. But it doesn't need to be doesn't need to be like. Well, this woman has a problem with alcohol, therefore she is a shitty mother and person and needs a husband. Like that whole connection yeah. I don't love. Uh then No fucking thank you. At the very end of the book when Alicia survives fifty spider bites from a spider whose venom is so venomous that if she had one bite, it would kill her in twenty four hours. Like there's sort of a subtext there that it's because she's Christian. And let me see if I can try to pull out what I'm talking about here. It's right at the very, very end. It's basically um, because she's praying there that her prayer focuses her enough to stand still enough so that the spiders don't get pissed. But even despite that, she does get bitten by the spiders a lot of times. And if the difference, like if it's a dosage thing that's going to dictate how fast you succumb to it, which is, of course, the thing the dosage of 50 bites might kill you quicker than one nip that kills you in 24 hours. Yeah, it absolutely would because the, the concentration of the poison is really is so great in one bite. If you then multiply that by 50 times, I can't imagine you would last very long. I mean, I guess she did get medical attention pretty quickly, like within a couple of hours um, because the uh, entomologist... God, am I saying this happened a few episodes ago? Where we were like, are we talking about bugs or are we talking? What are we, what are we talking about? Um, the bug bug man, uh, <laughs> <laughs> bug expert, um, you know, was able to get some kind of uh, antidote for this venom. I don't really know how they would have had that considering the spiders are not native to the You just knew that there area. was some like household chemical product that happened to no, work as like No. Uh-uh. It's an antidote. It's not a household product. Did he call up like a fucking Home Depot or something no. looking for like AT490? AT490 is the name of the antidote. It's not WD40, Chris. No, that's right. He called up some like hardware store. <laughs> No, he called a hardware store to a to ask them about like uh, the compounds of like a paint thinner or something that they found. Oh right, yeah, yeah it okay. had nothing to do with that. So sorry. I, I crossed a wire yeah, there, and I, I thought like, he was no. like, "Quick, get him the paint thinner." That'll, that'll help. No. no, to be clear, uh, I think. <laughs> Chris is a little too high or something. I don't know. But. I'm sober today. Thank <laughs> no, you. No, I meant when you were reading. Um, but anyway, sorry. Uh, to be clear, the entomologist uh, knew like what antidote to get. And so he asked. Um, he somehow had it. Did he have it? No, he had to procure it from someone. Yeah. He was frantically calling on the phone like, you guys got AT490? Yeah, let me look that up, actually, because that does matter to my point. Um, 
that I'm attempting to make here because I thought, okay, he called poison control and says like, hello, ma'am, I'm fine, blah, blah. We have a case of a spider bite here and we'll need some antitoxin. Do you have any AT490? Baylor Shrift came out with a great product this year. So he's calling poison control. I don't think poison control handles spider bites. Now that I'm thinking about, is that a thing? Can you call poison control? Is that animal control? No, I mean, Uh, is there venom control? Perhaps is a subtext. Hang on, we're passing you through to venom control. It's like Power Rangers, and they're they're (laughs) just there for Spider-Man. No, I I didn't even think to look this up before. Oh, you've reached Zordon? What seems to be the problem? Uh, I was trying to reach venom control. Oh, yeah, that's Spider-Man. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Who gave you this? (laughs) Okay, yeah, I guess it is normal procedure that if you you do contact poison control for potentially venomous spider bites. Okay. Anyway. I mean, I will say, like, in this book, there's a lot of, like, technical stuff that seems to be, like, well-researched. It's kind of the good part, big and first. But listen, there was a part early on where they were talking about, like, filtering out frequencies and, like, the sound technology and vocabulary was accurate. So I was, like, a sound guy. I appreciated that, like, three paragraphs where there was, like... Oh, you actually kind of know what you're talking about when it comes to audio. Yeah, but then there's other things that they just threw in the Oh, trash. yeah, sure. There's uh, plenty of other just, shit that ain't, but... So anyway, sorry. I was trying... This whole thing happened because I was trying to go to the very end and talk about how it kind of seemed like they were like, she lived because of Jesus, but um, it's not... Really, as, it was the professor who has a, you know, knowledge of science. Yeah, it's not actually stated that way, um, but it's sort of like... You know, these 50 spider bites would have killed 50 people, but you survived. Yes. You did. Nod, nod, wink, wink. Yeah, that's kind God of... God's special lady. Yeah, so I guess it was it was uh, way more subtle than I thought, so maybe I'm wrong. Anyway. Um, oh, fucking straw man, liberal high school teacher. Uh, yeah, this is getting into the whole that? evolution and morality debates that happen yeah. in the classrooms all the time. But like, so separately, Alicia and Elijah get into arguments with two different teachers. One is over like philosoph- philosophy philosophical like who gets to say what's right and wrong because the professor says oh my god they put the ten commandments in front of the courthouse and that's bad and then Elijah's like well you're saying that because you said that it's bad means that you can't pass judgment on others and then you're being a hypocrite you can we get you can't say everything is right and every viewpoint is valid and therefore you can't say things are wrong because you're saying a viewpoint is invalid. Ha ha, I've caught you, Mr. Philosophy Professor. And then Alicia gets into like the evolution debate, yes. I think. Yeah, and which- they and they both constantly do this where they're like, ha ha, you can't say anything's really wrong or right because then you're passing judgment. And the parents even like tell them like, wow, yeah, you really gave it to them, kids. Like, good argument. <laughs> and I mean, in reality... You know, if we if we go back to the discussion with the teacher that Elijah had about the Ten Commandments statue, we're like the teacher is trying to tell them about like how the law in the United States works. It's not really like about morality. I mean, it's about like in the United States, we are supposed to have a separation between church and state that's enshrined in our laws. And if we, you know, if a government building or institution gives preferential treatment to one religion over another, like, let's say, putting a giant ass Ten Commandments statue out front that sort of puts Christianity on a pedestal, it's violating that tenet in the law. And so I 
I mean, I guess if you want to have a different discussion about, I don't know, about whether you think the United States laws are valid, that's fine. But this whole thing is like a misdirection in in that part. And it really annoyed the shit out of me. I was like, it's not about like, oh, in the grand scheme of things, who's right and wrong. It's like, no, the laws in this country are this. Therefore, we shouldn't do this because these are the values that we supposedly care about that are enshrined in the written laws. The the logical leap that's being made here is because the teacher is saying, oh, we can't uphold Christianity. Therefore, this teacher must also think that we have to give equal playing field to all sorts of ideas that are out there. And that is not what the point is being made is, but that is what the book is trying to say. And therefore that's how you trap the teacher in the logic argument of like, Oh, if you say anything is wrong or right morally, then you're being a hypocrite about your point here because you're not truly giving everything equal credence. And the law isn't about giving all viewpoints, level playing fields or equal playing time. It's about not upholding one specific, specific one as like where we're deriving our morality from essentially yeah and i mean if you know if you want to think more about this or read more about this i suggest looking at karl popper's paradox of tolerance i think it very accurately explains like again this is somewhat of a diversion but it's sort of it's definitely related in terms of like how we think about things like philosophy i guess um and human nature you know, a lot of um, kind of far right or extremist groups, maybe, I, I don't know, I would say I, I see this a lot from kind of far right groups uh, where they feel like or they will say things like, well, you can't ban anything or put any, you know, guardrails on anything at all because that's suppression of you know, basically you have to consider all thing, all ideas as exactly equal and give all ideas an equal platform. And while that might seem on its face of like a very attractive and oh, of course, that's right idea. When you start to think about ideas that actually crush whole swaths of other ideas and people like, for example, ideas about genocide of an entire population, <laughs> unfortunately, intolerant ideas cannot be tolerated and again this you know this might feel a little confusing but uh i would suggest just so that we don't get too far off uh the track here please look up Karl popper's paradox of tolerance and intolerance it's uh i think it really very well explains yeah, the problem this has been well trod ground <laughs> yes. so it's not like frank peretti came up with like the unraveling no. of like no. Uh, no, Popper was active in like the 40s and 50s um, right, as, a, like, as a philosopher. I, I, I personally have read a lot of Popper and am familiar with his work, but not everybody is. Anyway, Paradox of Tolerance, check it out. Educate your little brains. Um, anyway, back to this book. This is actually kind of a good segue into the whole making fun of evolution part of the book, which frustrated me perhaps more than the straw man shitty argument teacher argument that we were just talking about with moral relativism because these actually i don't know i feel like all of these scenes could have just been cut from the book because they had absolutely nothing to do with the mystery or the family i mean a little bit it's there to show you that alicia and elijah are willing to stand up for their principles right but you also get that when elijah befriends ian and is willing to put himself in the way of bullies that are you know 
messing with him or when Alicia puts herself in the way of bullies that are messing with Norman, too. Mm-hmm. So you're still getting it from that scenes, which ultimately means we don't have to have these screeds against moral relativism and evolution in here. It's just proselytizing for no reason. Yeah, I mean, especially the evolution one. I mean... I just feel like, yeah, luckily neither of these sort of screeds are very long. So I actually don't think it would even affect the even how like long the book is because it would just be a couple pages. So, yeah, it would it would have been a much better book without this stuff. Um, So let's talk in a little bit of detail about the evolution, uh, the anti-evolution sentiment. So. The main problem is that the author, I don't know if it's, I don't know if the author himself has a misunderstanding of the concept of evolution and how science works, or if he just wrote it this way because he knew it might work for some like extreme Christian viewpoints. I don't know, but it certainly comes off as though he does not understand evolution or the scientific method. So that's like the main issue here. First problem is that Alicia is like, oh, my God, evolution is obviously wrong because because like we we're not always gaining limbs. And like that's all evolution is about is like gaining limbs and traits. No, evolution is also about losing limbs and traits and skills if they are no longer relevant to the survival of your species. Like if they don't if they aren't helping your species continue, then your body will slowly drop them over time. And perhaps either change it into something else or... Yeah, just to be clear, when we say your body, it's not your person. Like, that's another thing that I think a lot of these folks don't understand is it's not like there's this, you know, within one or two generations process of like, oh, some force in the cells is deciding that we have to gain or lose this trait. It's simply just pressure based on what helps you survive. Yeah, in the environment. yeah, exactly. So if it helps me survive that I can store a lot of fat and I don't have I can wait a long time between meals, then perhaps the human race will over time gain more weight that they're carrying because it helps them live to procreate to create another generation. That is the only thing that matters in evolution. It's not about strength, it's not about who's stronger. In fact, plenty of species are pretty weak and the only reason they are able to procreate and survive is simply because they can run the fuck away really well mm-hmm. or like or the they only can reason bite you with their sp- venom <laughs> yeah yeah so like the, uh, another reason that animals go extinct and species are endangered right now is because the way that humans change the world puts pressure on those animals to figure out a way to survive amongst all the environmental changes we've rot upon the earth so the only species that are going to flourish are species that can deal with i don't know eating out of the trash which is why you see a lot of rats and raccoons in it's cities the instead of, of non-trashy the, raccoon. the raccoons are rising right it's like it's just simple logic of like if this thing helps me survive in this environment i'm going to create more of that thing right and i think your point about how it's not within like a generation or two it's over like a much longer time scale than I think most people can imagine, which is yes. why it's a hard thing to understand. Um, you know, and the best, I mean, I guess the best example of this are like species that we can breed very quickly, like house flies, right? Their life yes. cycle is 24 hours. So they're a great uh, way to kind of study evolution or like moths, for example, also a very, very short life cycle, at least in terms of hum- the concept of human time. Anyway, 
point being evolution is not only additive it is also subtractive and it is transformative so that argument was just so plainly stupid i can't believe it made it into the book um next they uh talk about the ernst ernest ernst ernst i don't know Haeckel, it's German. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be Ernest or Ernst Haeckel, uh, and his theory of embryology. So are they right that these drawings are are inaccurate? Yes. Are Is the book right in saying that these drawings shouldn't be in modern science textbooks? Also, yes. However, that doesn't invalidate the whole book, and it also doesn't invalidate the text surrounding the image. Like, this uh there's a whole long history about Haeckel's embryology drawings uh if you want to know more about it there's a book from 2015 called Haeckel's Embryos Images Evolution and Fraud by Nick Hopwood whole book about it um but essentially let me try to explain what I learned from reading passages from this book so Haeckel was a you know an early scientist in the that I forget what year uh 1800s sometime mid to late 1800s I think I could be wrong about that. Um, And like many scientists of the time, he had a lot of different theories. And guess what? A lot of scientific theories end up not being correct because you have to prove them through experiments. And if you're not doing experiments at all or or it's not possible to do those experiments, you know, you're not going to actually know that they were wrong, that they're wrong until until we can take a look at it from, you know, an experimental scientific standpoint. So a lot of scientists have a bunch of theories that don't turn out to be right. So one of yeah, them is... Yeah, that doesn't invalidate the scientific no. method. It's a natural part of, like, humans are coming up with all kinds of harebrained ideas, and sometimes they're right, a lot of the time they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And we determine what's right by just continuous testing and iterative process that yeah. continues to verify certain models more and more. The idea that science is like, this is the one way, and if like a scientist changes their viewpoint or opinion on something that they've somehow been lying to you is a total mischaracterization of what that branch of what what how we seek knowledge and truth, honestly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Russ. That was a good explanation. Um, the whole thing with Haeckel and embryology, he had this theory that um, an organism goes through all stages of the forms of life from which it has evolved during its embryonic development, which is obviously false. So unfortunately, this theory, he drew he drew images of like certain species embryonic development. And it was like, I don't know if it was a human, it would like start as a monkey and then like change over to a person. So like, you know, it's pretty stupid um but there are parts of this idea that are true that modern geneticists have confirmed and that little part is that there are actually important similarities between different vertebrate embryos like when you're looking at the embryonic development of like i don't know let's say a person and like a macaque or something you will see similarities in the embryos because they do share a common ancestor, right? Right. But, um, the actual process of embryonic development, is not like it's, we don't start as a little, a little monkey. Yeah. You like run then, through the deck yeah. first. Like, yeah. Oh no, you took him out too early. He's a chimp. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so like this seems a little silly to us today. Um, so unfortunately, you know, in previous centuries, we did not have the benefit of like, 
the internet or the widespread availability of telephones. So people used illustrations to communicate things. And unfortunately, these illustrations just kind of kept getting perpetuated through a variety of really bizarre circumstances, even though Haeckel's contemporaries were like, yo, this this isn't right. And like, <laughs> like even then they were like, nah, this isn't true. But um, anyway, that that book by Nick Hopwood goes into a lot of detail explaining how this happened. Um, but anyway, the perpetuation of fraudulent imagery to me is fascinating because it's something that we deal with still every day on the Internet. Yes. Um, and so it just blew my mind that this is this is like an earlier example yeah. of that. So unfortunately, because these images somehow kept getting reproduced um, due to like miscommunication and long distances and, you know, misunderstandings, they were still in textbooks in the late 90s. So if this book was written in 2001, then, yeah, there totally could have been a textbook with that in it. That's that's it. That's all it is. Yeah. The stupid fucking incorrect image was perpetuated. I don't know. Just as like, is, hey, look at I'm, embryos. And it's yeah, not I mean, this right. is also why that you shouldn't take everything that you learn during your school time as the absolute gospel truth. We need to you need to understand that a lot of what we are taught is our best understanding at the time, hopefully, mm-hmm. and that you should always be reevaluating and reexamining things as new information comes to light. And that's just going to constantly be happening, which was not to dive into this whole thing too deeply. Well, I'm just going to say a couple of sentences on this and we can move right the fuck on, which is why it was baffling whenever the when the COVID stuff started hitting and people like, oh, they're changing their minds about how it works. It's like, yes, because it's novel and we're, we're coming up with this information as we go along. Of course, things are going to change as our understanding changes. And it's not stupid or like being lied to if you change your behavior based on what information is coming out to you at the time. Yeah. I know. Um, Obviously, like moving right along past that. (laughs) Uh, The next thing they bring up is the Miller experiment where this scientist uh, put a few amino acids or I don't know. He electrified some amino acids that scientists thought could have been the beginnings of life on Earth. It could have replicated what happened like lightning struck certain compounds and then it turned into life so this guy electrocuted some amino acids it was an experiment many decades ago he never no no reference to this experiment ever says anything except amino acids are theorized to hold the building blocks of life not life itself scientists acknowledge that we're missing the critical step that turned these amino acids into full organisms but we don't know what that is even today So, like, I don't know what the problem is because, again, retelling what happened in an experiment, even if the outcome isn't expected, is science. I do not understand why this (laughs) is difficult to say, hey, this guy was interested in figuring out the origins of life, so he electrocuted some amino acids. And we learned some things about it, but ultimately we didn't find the meaning of life. Like, there is, in the book, it's represented as though, oh, uh, science Miller found life. There it is. Like we know how organisms start, and that that is not at all how it appears. I mean, unless unless this author had access to some really shitty textbooks, which is possible because yes. American school textbooks are <laughs> pretty bad. I just I would. Ah, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's how that works. I don't think that's I how guess, it would be represented. To me, like, the, the 
craziest thing about this is that neither of these examples are invalidating the natural selection pressure process. They're like these tangential to that ideas about how things developed over time. It's in no way do they say, well, obviously natural pressure isn't applied to organisms for their survivability, which is the fundamental crux of the evolutionary theory, not how did amino acids become life or what happens in embryonic development. Yeah, I get, this is this is sort of a, I think this is all cherry picking, right? That would be the logical fallacy we're dealing yeah. with here. In addition, I mean, that's like the general one, right? Because they're just picking out these little things that they think are problems, whether or not they really are. Um, and moving on, they also uh, they think the Cossacks is a problem. They think that no way was the Cossacks ever a tail. Um, if you're unfamiliar, your Cossacks is your tailbone. It is the thing that helps your body uh, remain balanced and kind of helps your hips uh, move around and, and stay situated in, in ways that best work for a bipedal creature. Um, but before we were bipedal, the Cossacks was our tailbone when, you know, long ago we were, you know, primates of some kind to the best of our knowledge. Again, like this is, uh, um, so they, in the book are like, yeah, there's no way the Cossacks was ever a tail. And it's like, but if you look at the bones, you can see that they were that it was fused from other bones that in primates are tail bones. So I anyway, like, yeah, it's like they can't imagine that something in the body could possibly have had a different function and got reused as something else. Like, that's how organisms work like they either it's not even like you know reused in the way of like the the primate figured out oh i can just stand upright and fuse my tailbone together and therefore i'll be fine <laughs> it's just the natural pressure of like well those animals didn't have to de devote growth resources into developing the tail and the people and the people the primates that had this fused tailbone structure which might have been considered a quote-unquote birth defect to those primates like oh you're the weird monkey with the with no tail and a fused tailbone get out of here weirdo <laughs> but then that monkey could walk around easier and get food easier and could mate and breed with other primates that had that trait and that was propagated and therefore more of them survived to fuck again and create more <laughs> yeah that's the whole thing it's not like anyone's deciding this is the strong thing it's just that they happen to have that fused tailbone which let them walk upright and balance and they could get food easier and fuck that's that's all. Yeah. Like we still needed to balance, even though we didn't need the tail. And so this was the, you know, this is how it worked. And Chris, you're no, I'm going to let you take the next note. Cause it's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> Like, these people must be mystified when any object gets, that's not used for its original purpose gets reused in some... Like, oh my god, I can take the jar of spaghetti sauce... So I can take the label off the jar of spaghetti sauce and put other things in the jar for later? No, you're not oh. allowed to evolve in this household. You throw that jar away. We don't Wait reuse. a minute, this blood pressure medication gives me a boner? Oh, I, 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 there's no reason I should use it for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just just bonkers. Um, and then lastly, with this evolution stuff, there's also this barely veiled effort to connect evolution at, with might is right, which is fucking disturbing, frankly, and kind of lame. Like, yeah, that's Mr. Marquat comes in. He's like, well, it's just how life is and survival of the fittest is the way to go. And therefore, evolution is this horribly callous theory that no Christian should vibe with because that means that, you know, the world isn't soft and nice and full of God's love. 
but yeah. that's not what evolution yeah, is. Survival, it's not might makes race. Yeah, survival of the fittest isn't survival of the strongest, buffest fucking cat. You know, it's not like cruelest animal. It's about survival <laughs> of the animal that can best fits continue to be alive. Yes, that can continue to fucking reproduce. That's it. That's it. Ah. Uh. All right, sorry, that was a lot. We're done with the evolution shit. Be rejoice. <laughs> Fucking amen. We are now moving on to the spider plot. Okay. All right. So, I was pretty down with I was pretty down with the spider plot until I was like, I want to learn more about this. The entire spider thing isn't real. None of it's real. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. It really soured the whole book for me. Like, all right, look, I know it's fiction. And I know like even Chris and I feel differently about this a lot of the time where Chris is like, eh, it's fiction. Do whatever you want. But I'm like, no, it's way more fun when fiction flirts with reality and you can imagine it happening. It makes the plot a little more feasible, especially when this is a book where it's like, hey, imagine if this was really happening like, it's not a total, you know, fantasy jerk-off section. It's, like, in the United States, in the modern day, relatively, like, a regular family. Why is none of this real? I just, oh, it kills me. Especially when, you know, back to the X-Files point, plenty of X-Files episodes did this really well, where even though all the episodes had some connection to the paranormal Many of them were actually based on real things that happened and that either turned out to not be paranormal at all or, you know, maybe people still considered it that way, but it had a basis in reality. I only listed a handful, but there's actually plenty of them. Like if, if you know anything about X-Files, uh, these these episodes illustrate my point. Um, the Erlenmeyer flask, the voodoo that you do. Dotcom, Family Love, 731 Nisai, Dwayne Barry, Foyadu, and there's just a whole host of X-Files episodes that execute this very well. And so it was really disappointing because I feel like it is possible to make something a little fantastical but base it on real facts. I think what you're getting at, Paris, is that like the scientific mechanics should hold true, even if it's not a thing that happened in real life at all. Yeah. Like the possibility that this could happen is is real yeah and that's it makes what it makes way it scarier, right it makes it way scarier too because you're like oh shit this could really happen but we it's kind of presented as if that's true but as we're about to get into there's a lot of things that, like that's not how it works actually yeah and that would really bummed me out because i felt like you know for all the screeds against evolution this family was actually pretty good about following scientific method and even like chris was saying earlier with the audio facts being accurate it really sets you up or tricks you into thinking that well of course the spider plot must be true because the rest of it was well done but it's not Let's talk about why that is. All right, so let's, Chris, do you want to, like, briefly review the spider plot before I, br- I go and break down the parts of it? Okay, Norman has possession of African wolf spiders. That he got because he lived in Kenya for a year. And somehow transported back to the Americas. Question mark. Smuggled him in a straw, I guess. I don't know. And, and so those spiders come over here. Norman knows that they confuse with other 
spider species because he's he's up on his bug knowledge because of the internet or something Mm -hmm. and he knows to keep them away from brown recluses unless they unleash hybrid things because that's what happened on the uss abel fry that's where that name comes from which by the way why didn't they just google the name abel fry when they were doing the research why wasn't that a thing that they did when they're talking about the internet a whole lot i know aside from that aside from that Basically, th- this is how, like, he knows that these venomous spiders exist. He keeps them away from the brown recluses so they can't hyperbreed into, you know, horrible hybrid venomous spiders. And the whole idea is that they breed so quickly and easily mm-hmm. that they propagate in the space of, like, a week to, like, thousands and millions, essentially. Yes. Yeah, and he also learned this trick, supposedly, of, like spraying spider pheromones on people and then putting the opposite sex spider on them to kill them from indigenous Kenyans. So that's the whole spider thing, Mm -hmm. right? Let's talk about why none of this makes a goddamn lick of sense. Okay, so... Before we move on, Paris, we're going to have to talk about this quote later. (laughs) Okay, all right. Just letting you know we got to squeeze that in. All right, so after we talk about this, we have one more... uh, (laughs) language note and yes. then we will be done uh so thank you for your attention and patience with us okay so problem one you have a high schooler who lives in africa for a year and then intentionally transports back enough like breeding age male and female spider spiders of a super venomous dangerous spider back to the united states very surprising that that no would issue be whatsoever, no hangups. It's just you accept that that had happened. Well, maybe it's because of the years that we're talking about here. Because this would have been, I mean, it was published in two thousand one, so yeah. we're probably working in the conventions of like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, when you know airport security wasn't quite what it is now. So maybe it would have been more possible. But I, st- I don't know. I still question that. We, you know, and he also did it in such a way where like no alarms were raised so like he didn't get bitten or anybody else like no one died yeah. when he transported them um that's like a, and that's like a really long-term plan for a high school kid because he would have had to do that well pre-bullying. before yeah pre-bullying <laughs> because i or or maybe like i guess i'm not sure what year of high school he's in if he's like a junior or a sophomore i don't remember but yeah, like either he can he's been concocting this plan for like several years <laughs> or he maybe he brought them over because he I don't know, he thought they were cool to have and then the plot I mean that's more logical. But anyway, I still question how he could have gotten them here. Um second, brown recluses don't live in Washington state. Their their territory their territories aren't anywhere near Washington state. Looking I mean, that's part of the plot of why he was like, I assumed it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. So they don't, they wouldn't be there for any reason. Um, of course, things get moved around sometimes, but it's, it would be really hard for 
like, okay, like you put one brown recluse in Washington, it's not going to mate with anything else. There's no other brown recluse. Like, you know what I mean? It would be very difficult. That's that the problem happen. here, right? It's like actually the mechanics of spider mating oh, are yeah. difficult and yeah. like not as easy as it makes it seem to be. It's not no. like all spiders can have a giant spider orgy and you get all different kinds no. of other spiders. No. So yeah, of course, this is like another terrible book classic moment where Paris spent a lot of time reading about spider copulation and, <laughs> and spider habitats. And so like all right, so not only are brown recluses not even native to that area, and even if even if someone accidentally dumped one, like it would it would just take a lot more for that to for those to be there. Secondly, uh, African wolf spiders do not exist; they're not real. The only the closest thing is um, the uh, what was it called? The Kenyan. Oh my god! Uh, the oh the funnel web spider, which is actually the super super dangerous spider from Kenya that you could have written this about. Why didn't you just write it about the actual super poisonous dangerous spider from Kenya? Why did you make up the African wolf spider? I don't get it. it makes no sense. Second, uh, oh god, I don't even know what point I'm on. Uh, next point. Indigenous Kenyans do not plant pheromones on enemies to trick male spiders into murdering them. That is just not a thing. This was just some invention of the author. Yeah, this is some more like savagery methods of murder here because African tribe can't. They wouldn't just, you know, knife the dude or shoot him. They're not going to do that. They're going to use some mystical spider stuff. Yeah. So, so there's all that, right? Which is a problem. And my first question is, yeah, why wouldn't you just make this about the actual real funnel web spider from Kenya that is super dangerous and, and poisonous or venomous? And why make up this story about indigenous Kenyans having this method when, like, Norman could have just been inspired by doing his nerd reading on spider mating habits, which it's very clear that he does. Like he could have just read about it and been like, Oh, this is a good plan. Like he's clearly a smart kid. I don't, I don't get why they had to add this element. Um, uh, lastly, Oh, next hybrid spider hybrids. So here's the thing. Yeah. Like Chris was saying, spider sex, very complicated, not, not in like the process, but just the fact that, um, the way that the way that spider evolution works, um, spider genitals are wildly different between species, even species that are very closely related. So if even so, like you for hybrids to occur, you would have to have two species that have only recently diverged and still retain similar copulatory organs and they would need to be living in close proximity, which generally only occurs in captivity and not out in the world due to like how, how spiders have dispersed geographically around the world. So like there's all these things that need to happen. So you're saying that hybrids. transporting spiders from the opposite side of the fucking world to mate with, you know, some spiders that shouldn't even be in that region of the other side of the world is nearly impossible. Yeah, and furthermore, like, there is no such thing as brown recluse hybrids. There seemed to be a lot of questions about this on the internet. I went on a lot of entomology forums and stuff and was reading about oh, it. Cool. And, and so spider hybrids in general, very, very difficult to make happen unless you have two species that have similar copulatory organs because they have recently diverged and they are forced together in a captive environment. Okay. Okay. So 
Are, are those your points about spider? No, I have more. Okay, great. <laughs> um, let's talk about male spider pheromones. So there's a point in the book where um, it's like uh, the spiders respect Norman because he's sprayed himself with male spider pheromone. And therefore, they're like, oh, no, we won't get near him or crawl on him. That's not a fucking thing. The vast majority of spider pheromones are actually secreted by female spiders. So even finding a male spider, like a spider species where the male secretes a pheromone is rare to begin with. Secondly, when when there is a spider species where the males do secrete pheromones, they're not to mark territory like a dog. They're actually like the rape drugs of the spider world, which is fucked up. So they're either used to incapacitate females. Again, sorry, we should put a content warning on this. This is really fucked up. Or they're used to attract females. So there's no like... It's not like a dog pissing on a hydrant and then other dogs are like, oh, stay away. Like, that's not how they work at all, apparently. Again, I'm no expert, but, like, I did a lot of fucking reading on this (laughs) last week. God damn it. Um, And then lastly... There's a part in the book where the the dad, I think, or, or maybe the entomologist is like, fire extinguishers can paralyze spiders. So, like, let's use the fire extinguishers, like the CO2 and the extinguishers to save anyone who's covered in spiders. Like, blast them with a fire extinguisher and it'll it'll paralyze the spiders and we can knock them off. In actuality, like, it's not, it doesn't quite work that way. Like, CO2 in fire extinguishers can kill a spider if it's sprayed really up close and it can kind of like push him back just due to the force of mm-hmm. the chemical coming out of the fire extinguisher but it doesn't like knock them out like <laughs> the book claims it's not just like oh no the spider fainted like that's not i don't think it would work is my point um fuck this whole thing why okay. why so why? really what this comes down to paris is like the why is that maybe the dude knew about funnel spiders but like mechanically he needed some kind of spider that could hybridize with brown recluses and also have the big climactic moment where you know norman's breeding program got out of control because of things that he didn't consider so like the funnel spider would but the funnel spider would have worked for that because norman could have still lost control of it when like one funnel spider yeah. or a pair of them goes off and like breeds without him knowing exactly. Still could have had that whole thing happen. It was unnecessary for that. And then the whole misunderstanding of how, you know, hybridization might occur with spiders. And that, you know, that so that's the bow on that. But that brings me to a, a line in this book that is tangentially related to this that is just... It sat in my brain and baffled me as to what the fuck this meant <laughs> to the point that I had to contact you and a friend about, like, can you please explain what this line means to me? Oh, yeah. So the bug man, the entomologist, is describing the mating habits of these African wolf spiders. Um, and they're kind of deducing how, you know, this whole plot was pulled off by Norman. And this line happens. He borrowed his way through a sugar plug, mated with her. It's not very exciting. Kind of like throwing a McDonald's hamburger into a glove box. What? 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 Okay, so I know later in the paragraph, it talks about the female spider eating the male spider after mating. But in the way the sentence is structured, it seems like the whole McDonald's burger in the glove box thing is part of the mating process. And in that, if you're, so if your metaphor 
is that the burger is the male spider and the glove box is the female spider. So, but then the glove box ate the male spider, it, like as the breeding mechanism is what you're talking about here. The glove box didn't fuck the hamburger, so that doesn't work. Is this some kind of like retread of the hot dog down a hallway joke where it's like, oh, his spider dick was like really tiny for the female one or something like that? Is, is it some kind of like this spider cock was round like a hamburger joke? I don't understand where like it's a very sloppy be simile and i don't like i'm just trying to like okay the glove box is who in this scenario the burger is what in this scenario i need a map i need a map the glove box is eating the burger but it's not so okay the female spider eats the male spider later but not during the mating process so is the glove box hamburger what's not exciting like what i don't i i don't know and then i have further questions like who has just thrown a hamburger in a glove box and just shut it who does that? You I can imagine it. some people doing that, but Why? like, you, you, wouldn't you just save it on the seat for yeah, later you if you're really going to... Yeah, leave it in the bag and put it in the seat next to you. If like, you're putting you it in the glove box, that's like long-term fast food storage for like ne- tomorrow or something. Yeah, and then it's going to be gross. It's going to smell up your whole fucking car. Like, I don't... Why would you ever put a hamburger in the <laughs> glove box? I To fuck it later. <laughs> ha- anyone? Has anyone... Put a hamburger in a glove box and why? Please write in <laughs> terriblebookclub at gmail.com. Please. I mean, I it's, need to to know. Sa- it's to save the burger for later, which again is I get what the simile was trying to have happen here, but the way it was presented is so, it sounds like that's part of the mating process. Yeah. Instead of- I also, I mean, look, all right. I read a lot about. Burgers eating glove, glove no, no, I read a lot about spider copulation. However, I did not look at any diagrams or imagery and. I'm on my uh, partner's computer. I'm not going to subject his search history to that. So I I don't know if you are a spider expert or you are a person who has used your glove box to store a hamburger. Please write in terribleclub at gmail.com. I really need some help. I need some help with this. I don't know. I, my problem again, my whole problem with this is the, the what the professor says is it's spider mating. It's not very exciting, like throwing a hamburger in the glove box. I think, yeah, I think he's going for the mundane, mundanity, the mundanity, mun- I can't say that word. He's going for, he's trying to say spider sex isn't exciting. It's as mundane as just tossing a hamburger in a glove box. But like, why would that be your example of something that's mundane? <laughs> I- <laughs> There's no angle at which this is like constructed and fits well together. No, no, it's a real, uh, real linguistic failure. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for bringing that up. I completely forgot to add that to the notes earlier. I I had to stop. Like I was clipping through this book pretty quickly and I had to stop. And like my friend, the other friend that I said, like he like likes to listen to stand up comedy and stuff like that. And he likes to kind of deconstruct how jokes are made sometimes. So I had to like send it to him as like. Is is this some kind of joke that I'm not getting? And he was also like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I hope, I hope we get some, uh, some clarity at some point. But anyhow, can we fix this, Chris? Can we fix it? I mean, 
the basic mystery and plot could be fine if you clipped out all of this evolution and morality proselytizing and you just swapped out the fake spider science for just use the real spider. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. if, if everything else is done so well, why not just use your writing skill that you have here to just make the real spider work when all the other like some of the other stuff in this book seems to be decently well researched. Yeah. You obviously probably read about the funnel spider from Kenya. So just slot that in and it doesn't have to be some kind of like accidental hybridization. It could just be, oh, shit, I let some of them loose. Yeah, I I totally agree. Like, I don't know. I feel like if this book didn't have these weird points of Christian proselytizing and if it just used real spider science, it would have actually been pretty okay for a YA book. I got to say, like, unfortunately, the anti-evolution rants and the implausibility of the spider plot really, like, fucked it up for me, especially when Alicia survives 50 bites from a spider that with one bite would kill someone in 24 hours. And most especially when you are dealing with a book whose target audience is specifically people with developing brains, young people. I really don't want like shit with incorrect information about evolution and morality hammers in books for developing kids. It's just not cool. It's not cool. Don't do it. Yeah. So I think that's well covered. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a bummer. I think this book, actually would have been a pretty good YA book if it didn't if it didn't stray uh into weird weird anti-evolution anti-science stuff don't love it all right well well, thank you beast with the least for recommending this to us it was certainly an interesting read yeah i i'm actually glad this was recommended because we have we've never read anything quite like this so it was great i really love that we get all these totally wildly different recommendations from from patrons it really keeps keeps us on our toes keeps things lively uh but yeah beast with the least we uh we hope this was what you were hoping for expecting we hope we <laughs> hope we did it justice uh i hope we were angry at some of the same things you were angry at um or maybe different things maybe different things that's also interesting and fun just going to take a minute here to thank our patrons. Thank you, Dari, Greg, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Lynn, Senia, Jakub, like Chorus, Elliot, Kieran, Martin, Jay, Scott G, Luchek, CTAP1, Miri, Yanka, David, Anya, Anonymous, Patricia, Austin, Donnie, Crimson Paladin, Beast with the Least, Archagent Everlasting, Scott H, Robin, and Lax Stodies. Thank you so much for supporting the show, everybody. Yeah, I think for now, uh, Chris and I are going to take a little break and record the next episode, which you will hear in two weeks. So I think this is a bye for now, Chris. Bye, Paris. Thank you for listening to another episode of Terrible Book Club. Terrible Book Club is an independent podcast produced by your hosts, Paris and Chris. Sound design and audio editing by Chris, with sound effects and music by Epidemic Sound and sometimes also Chris. Our theme song is Kiss by Yearn, which is, you guessed it, actually, also Chris. You can find more of his soothing synthy sounds on Bandcamp at yearn.bandcamp.com. Do you want us to review a book of your choice on the show? Do you want access to some extra audiovisual weirdness? If so, become a patron at patreon.com slash terriblebookclub. If you'd like to send us a one-time tip instead, you can do that at ko-fi.com slash terriblebookclub. 
You can also support TBC for free by sharing the show on social media, following our accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Goodreads, telling your friends about your favorite episode, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else on the internet. To send us book recommendations or your adorable pet photos, send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. 